This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Eric McCandless, the new project manager for the Bender Mellon Farm Preserve. Toward the end of his life, he's returning to his role of protecting the environment in a hands-on way. His first paid forestry work was as a member of an initial attack fire crew. His crew would dig lines with hand tools, use chainsaws, sleep in the dirt, and eat questionable food. He described the work as very exciting, very hard, and somewhat risky. This past September, he traveled to Oregon to revisit the site of his youthful labors and found Blue River no longer exists. It was wiped out by fire. What is it that um, qualified you, I think perhaps overqualified you, for this, for this new post? Just tell us a little about your career prior to this? I, um, I've had a, a long career in environmental issues, uh, starting with uh, actually firefighting in Oregon and, and uh, uh, forestry in uh, California and Oregon and, and the Northeast and in Australia and then some advanced degrees, but also working in New York State for many, many years. Uh, my, my native New York State, by the way, having traveled a bit, but um, in uh, environmental issues at, at environment, the Department of Environmental Conservation, DEC, or ENCON, what people like to call it, um, Environmental Facilities Corp. But kind of narrowing back down a little bit, um, I joined the uh, Mohawk Hudson Land Conservancy, which back then was the Albany County Land Conservancy, early in the mid-90s. And then uh, kind of got more and more involved as a volunteer and then was on the board, which was a working board at that time, and then uh, had uh, rotated off because of other life demands. But uh, so I've been staying very involved with them. And uh, with that combination of things, uh, I kept pestering Mark King, the executive director, to say, Mark, how can I help out? And Bender uh, Farm, now the preserve, was uh, a really a, a gem. And uh, he eventually came back around and said, well, you know, you want a job? <laughs> I said, I think so, do I? <laughs> and uh, he offered, we had a long chat with uh, uh, Mark and I and, and the uh, associate director, Sarah Walsh. And they said, we'd, we'd like to have you. And I said, yes, it's, it's a, it is part-time, not full-time. And um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, so are we. But I just want to back up. You just mentioned some tantalizing things as you zip through your history. You were firefighting in Oregon. Tell us about that. Well, I, uh, I graduated from um, Environmental Science and Forestry, EF, ESF Forestry School in Syracuse. In uh, early, uh, I was actually late early, but I think I graduated in December of 76, although I was a class of 77. And then in the spring of 77, I applied around the country. And uh, one of the jobs I got uh, was as a crew member on an initial attack fire crew in Blue River, Oregon. And uh, that was my, my first, um, I guess, paid forestry work. And after the end of the fire season there in October, uh, September, October, um, I was still on the fire crew, but worked into more silvicultural management and 
and uh, controlled burning, which was very exciting, you know, <laughs> and a variety of things like that. So, yeah, well, now with so many um, environmental disruptions and fires being just kind of on the consciousness of all Americans, just tell us a little bit what it was like in Blue River, Oregon. When were you on the front lines actually? Fighting these fires? Absolutely. Yeah, I was. I was young and healthy, and <laughs> uh, actually, one one thing to note though that uh, I I went out to Oregon this uh, past September, and Blue River no longer exists. A fire several years ago wiped it out, just like it did Paradise, California, and I went back and found the old ranger station or what's left of it, the concrete and some iron pipes coming out of the ground, but. It pretty much burned to the ground. Everything that I knew is was more or less gone. It was interesting. Oh, that's sad, though, isn't it? And I ran into a couple of locals who gave me uh, a story, which was very similar to Paradise. They had uh, heavy winds, power lines came down, fire started, and it ripped through the community in just a matter of hours. Um, th- there were some lives lost, but mostly people got out. Ah, um, oh, sad. To, to answer your question... Um, yeah, they, um, they, these were uh, initial attack crews. We're a 20-man crew, um, and uh, we did some training when I got out there. We did some practice burns, and then uh, we were called up on numerous occasions on the um, National Forest handoff uh, where a fire would be started. They'd need a crew. We'd, we'd be digging hand lines with hand tools and chainsaws and sleeping um, during the working at night, sleeping during the day quite often in paper sleeping bags in the dirt <laughs> and uh, wow. eating, eating uh, questionable food from uh, actually it wasn't bad, but you're starving as you know, young, young guys do when they're working. Um, uh, duck and cover when uh, the uh, air tanker bombers come through and drop Foscheck fire retardant and you know, the whole thing. It was. Uh, wow. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty amazing. Um, very, you know, very exciting, very, very hard work, um, somewhat risky. <laughs> uh, yeah, sort of like a rite of passage. So many men have a war experience that does that for them, but it seems like a comparable kind of experience for a young man. Um, I, I guess I wouldn't compare it to being a veteran quite, but yes, very exciting, a little yeah. risky. And, and I would note that a lot of the, the more senior folks uh, in in the fire management group were veterans. Uh, a lot of folks um, that I worked under uh, were vets from all, all branches of the military. Um, so so that kind of organization um, and discipline was brought into it too, which which I loved, frankly. But um, yeah, it's not for everybody. <laughs> well, another thing you just mentioned in passing was Australia. What brought you there, and what was your work there? Well, I, uh, I I went after working out west for a number of years. I moved. Uh, I, I decided that I was chafing <laughs> under the Forest Service bureaucracy a little bit, and I was in my you know early early mid twenties, uh, not mid mid to late twenties, I guess, and uh, decided to go to grad school, and applied around and got accepted in a number of places. And Penn State offered me good financial assistance, so I packed up from California and moved back to the East Coast and uh, did a couple of master's degrees at Penn State. But one of my uh, major professors um, was uh, from Australia. 
And while I was wrapping up, he accepted a position uh, that is called reader in forestry, which is essentially the uh, department head at uh, the the forestry school at the Australian National University in Canberra. So as I'm wrapping up my thesis and doing all that, I kind of casually said, you know, gee, you think I can get a job down there? You're moving home. And he said, well, let me see what I can do. And uh, indeed, um, I was hired uh, by through through him <laughs> uh, by the Australia APM Proprietary Limited, the Australian pulp manufacturers, to um, basically continue the computer modeling and research I was doing at Penn State. Um, so when I got there, um, they parked me in an office with a computer and no windows for about a week, and I was like, hmm, maybe I made a mistake. And they said, I'm sorry, we have. Uh, we have some budget cuts. We have to put you in the field. <laughs> uh, you know, oh, I, I was really looking forward to working on this model, but the field. So they gave me a radio and a, and a four-wheel drive truck and said, go out here and, and uh, study the wood density of radiata pine and micronutrient um, benefits of that. So <laughs> wait a sec, you've got to unpack that for us. You're studying the wood density of a certain kind of pine tree and what the yeah, the radiata pine is uh, native to California and had been brought down to Australia, I don't know how many decades, centuries ago, um, and has grown for both pulp and timber. But they, they grow like rockets down there. Um, in fact, they grow so fast that um, a cord volume of wood, um, the weight of it, the density of it was going down for some reason. So they had to cut more trees to get the same amount of pulp. Um, and the experiment that uh, I was assigned to was to uh, fertilize some plantations with a combination um, to try to test and find out what micronutrient was limiting the wood density. And uh, ultimately found out that kind of a combination of copper and sulfur were a little short. Um, but it was it was very exciting for me to, you know, get out there in my Jeep and drive out to the plantations and see the wallabies and the koala bears. And um, every once in a while, I had to drag some of my coworkers out to do some some uh, on site treatments. Um, and I just had a fantastic time. It was that was that was a trip of a lifetime. I was yeah. there a short year um, and I. Um, Eventually, the project ended and I toured the country in, in, in a converted car for several months and then came home right before Christmas. So it was uh, it was great. Yeah, it sounds great. So have you ever been back there the way you went back to Blue River? Have you ever gone? No. My wife and I have talked about doing that. She still works full time. So we haven't quite figured out the timing and the, the money to do it all. But um, it's on the list. Definitely a bucket list for me. Oh, that's great. Well, so then how did you settle into this long career with New York State? And tell us a little bit in more specificity what that involved. Well, um, I, I was actually born in Albany, um, raised in Slingerlands. And uh, all, all the stuff we've been talking about in the out west in Australia is kind of a, a great travel chapter. But uh, I came home from Australia um, at age 30 and God help me, lived with my parents for, for about six or eight months while I looked for work and um, ended up working in the New York State Legislature, um, 
we had the Assembly Ways and Means Committee doing budgets, um, but one of one of the for parks, for Encon, and for a number of Adirondack Park Agency and a number of other uh, environmental and arts groups. Um, it kind of got involved in not, not the politics, but uh, the the understanding the policies and and legislation and budgets of these organizations. And um, that wasn't for me. I, I got a couple of good years in there, but uh, I, it's, it's very important work and very good education. And I kind of considered it one more master's degree um, and got out of there after uh, several years and got a position with uh, environmental conservation as a special assistant to a deputy commissioner for um, environmental remediation. This was right after the first big bond act uh, was passed and funding was going in for uh, environmental cleanups. So I, uh, I spent quite a few years doing that, um, which was very interesting, exciting, a little out of my, um, my, my main zone, um, and then um, moved over to help establish a natural resources um, group that uh, helped secure funds where natural resource damages and, and damages in this case is kind of a dual word because uh, damages means not only the, the impact and harm to the environment, but damages meaning financial damages that are paid to the state and the communities in which these uh, uh, hazardous waste sites and things um, existed. So where, um, I don't know, a hazardous waste site is next to a lake. There's some nearby that <laughs> kind of fall into this category. Um, there are laws, state and federal laws, that allow the state and ENCON to pursue the polluter to get monies to help restore fish and water quality and impacts on vegetation or wildlife, those kinds of things, um, recreation even, um, above and beyond and separate from the cleanup of the site. So um, I spent some time doing that and then was uh, invited down to the Environmental Facilities Corporation where I spent Gee, I guess uh, 15, 16 years there, um, which which uh, is all, was a whole different world. Um, not not a state agency, but um, a uh, a corporation of New York State uh, that uh, primarily does water and sewer uh, infrastructure financing and assistance for municipalities in New York. A really really important and great role that they play. And I know, I know uh, you and I have talked a little bit about this uh, um, through emails, but uh, I know a lot of communities around uh, in Albany County have had the benefit of some EFC financing for their systems. Um, but I didn't really work with the state revolving fund, which is the main money source. I had a separate division at the time. I'm not sure it's, it's around anymore called... Um, technical advisory services. And what we did was a whole, whole host of um, uh, kind of like consulting and financial assistance, often to small businesses um, to help them with uh, fixing air pollution issues, water pollution issues, uh, permitting. Um, I, I get, we had dozens and dozens of programs. One of the biggest programs that I had was helping uh, the Department of Environmental Protection in New York City with the New York City Watershed Protection and Partnership programs, which was a you know, multi-billion dollar effort uh, to cover a variety of things. So, uh, but the main thing there was upgrading 
sewage and septic systems so that discharges within the New York City watershed and streams that flow into the reservoirs um, would be as clean as possible under new EPA standards. So I've been, I've been talking a lot. I should slow down a little. No, this is fascinating. But now what the big question that puzzles me is here you've gone from, you know, these very uh, important technical, dare I say, bureaucratic kinds of jobs to what made you decide to jump on late in life to being a kind of hands-on manager for this 175 acres of the Bender Mellon Farm Preserve? Well, I've, I've always been as hands-on as possible. Uh, you know, even at EFC, we, we had a group of us, only 25 or 30 of us, and we had a lot, a lot of different projects, and I, and I liked being involved. Yes, it was a little bureaucratic at times, but uh, fortunately, EFC um, was the least bureaucratic place I think I worked. But um, I wanted to come back around to my, let's call it my forestry background, my my green environment background. Um, and uh, having been involved with MHLC for so long and seeing this opportunity when Bender was acquired back in, what was it, late 2020? Yeah, 2020. Um, I was very excited to see that happen and had been volunteering and had had some hands-on through the Land Conservancy. And, and when I was offered the opportunity to do this, I jumped on it, basically. And may, maybe it's a, a, <laughs> a failure to retire. I don't know. But um, so that's, that's really what brought me back to it. So what do you envision doing there? Have you actually started the job yet or is it starting soon? Oh, yeah. No, I, I've been it's it's been about two weeks, 10 days, two weeks that I'm officially on board. I've been playing with things a little bit longer than that. But um, MHLC has got a great vision for the property, um, but it's a very small organization and needed another set of hands and feet and eyes. Um, and that's me, I guess. Um, but uh, so tell us about the vision first. What's the, the vision? Sure. There, and and I, I hope some of the listeners had the opportunity to uh, join into a, a webinar uh, session that MHLC had a while back. And I think it's available on the website, which is mohawkhudson.org. I can do a little pitch. But um, Part of that was to lay out some plans and part of it was to get feedback from, from the community on how everybody would like to see it happen. Um, right now, we're looking at um, developing or improving some uh, grassland bird habitat, maybe some pollinator sections. Um, there's some uh, wetland areas that we may be able to work with. Um, there's a, a one area, most of the property right now is kind of closed because we just acquired it and we haven't gotten trails and things in, but there's a trail called David's Trail that is, uh, I don't know if you've been on it. Um, we've had a pretty good, we had an opening last fall, which unfortunately I missed, I was away, but I actually worked on that trail as well. Um, and it's a lovely walk through the woods. Um, uh, Adjacent to the New Scotland Hilton barn property, that little park, um, and there's a trail that connects through. So you could park at the barn, you can park at the curve on 85A and pick up the trail in there. Um, th many folks know there's an old bridge over the rail trail 
Uh, and that's one of our projects that we're, we're working on getting that improved so we can provide safe access from the south side to the north side of the Bender Farm and access from the um, rail trail to Bender. Um, so, you know, we have all kinds of things like that going on. What have I missed? Um, there's, there's discussion of getting some uh, mountain biking trails maybe put in on the north side. Um, we, we may be able to conduct some uh, community education and demonstration projects there. It's such a big, beautiful property. So it's, it's, a, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty big selection of options that we're working on. Yeah, and it's a big property, what, 175 acres? Is that right? <clears throat> well, uh, right now, I think it's, it's 159 because there was a one piece. Oh, on the route. Route 85 that's going to be developed. I remember that now. Yeah, it was it was a nice way um, that uh, Mark and uh, Town of New Scotland worked out to allow a little more Hamlet development, um, a good balance between the conservation and the needs of the community for development um, and commerce. Um, and it also helped fund the uh, purchase of the property. So and it's, it's a very common thing that. Uh, is done with a lot of uh, land land trusts and conservancies where they'll buy a big piece and people say, hey, we don't want it all locked up. So they'll take a chunk um, and set it aside and let that become, um, you know, what the community desires in this case is uh, Hamlet development. Um, so we're, we're pretty excited about that too. But yeah, 159 acres is, is a nice, it's, it's, it's huge actually. It's not just a nice <laughs> piece of land. It's a beautiful property. It's got a great history. Um, and lots we can do there. So tell us a little about the history and how that history may or may not inform what it is you're doing with the property going forward. Oh, the history, Melissa, you've, you've written reams about the history and probably know more about it than I do. But what, what excites me is that here's this, this old farm that has this, this great history, really, with, with the melons, with the famous Bender melons, um, and there's still remnants of some of that in the old barns and things that we're, we're trying to preserve. Um, and then, you know, be, becoming a dairy farm for a while, which is what I remember as a kid, seeing cows wandering around in the fields and, and in the property across the street from um, the gateway and, and um, Stonewell in there. Um, but what, what I think part of it is trying to preserve that green space preserve the view shed from 85A off to the, uh, what is it, mostly to the east on that side, um, uh, providing more recreation opportunity in there, getting some trails in eventually. And, you know, that's, that's I, I'm really excited about all that kind of thing happening. Yeah, well, it seems like the Conservancy got it just in time because there are just these very large developments coming up all the way around it now. And it's kind of going to be a centerpiece that's open. And you mentioned for bird habitat and for pollinators and all those things that are so essential for the environment that we kind of just take for granted as if they're going to exist forever. And of course, they're not. So how... How can people get involved? You mentioned there's this online webinar on the Mohawk Hudson Land Conservancy site they can watch. But are you going to be, as you're building trails, are you going to be uh, working with residents who might volunteer? Or how, like how, 
How could, if people wanted to get involved who are listening, what would they do? Absolutely. And, and uh, two, two things are, are really what are very important pillars to MHLC. One is volunteers. And um, we, we have volunteer stewards and volunteer work committees, and some are dedicated to a specific um, a preserve, like, for example, the Bozenkill. There are folks who live nearby who uh, both help maintain it, but keep an eye on it. Um, so volunteerism is very, very important. Um, and, and fundraising, that's the other thing, whether it's a, you know, a $20 donation or as the super generosity we had with some of the big donors for Bender that make things like that happen. Um, but with regard to uh, Bender projects, it's early on. Um, we, we will need a lot of help. Um, we've had some good success, for example, with David's Trail. When I was out there, I think we had a dozen or more people. Uh, we have a volunteer coordinator. Um, actually, we're getting a new one who I believe, Marshall, I believe is starting maybe this week or next. Um, and uh, I, I guess volunteer, going through the website and expressing interest in volunteering, whether it's Bender or anything else, is, is really the way to go. We also obviously want to hear from community residents about uh, how they how they feel the property might be used, or if once we get things up and running and they say, "Hey, you know, I, I see a problem out there," they can let us know and we can we can address it. So you know, they have a lot of functions, but we really really love and depend on our volunteers. As right now, I think including me, we're a staff of six, <laughs> and we have several thousand acres of property and and miles and miles of trails. Um, many of which are open to the public, some of which are not. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's the main thing. Or, you know, the other is if there's a, someone out there who, who's really interested in preserving their property uh, through an easement or, or a, a fee uh, transfer, um, we, we are always interested in, in looking into those opportunities, too. Well, our time is going rapidly. There's just one thing before I ask you for closing thoughts that when I was tooling around online to find out about you that fascinated me and it didn't get to fit in with the rest of the conversation. But you're a Tai Chi instructor. Is that right? Can you just tell us a little about that? Yes, I, I knew that's where you're going. Um, <laughs> yeah, in college, I, I took karate at multiple places at multiple levels. And after I retired, I was kind of talking to my wife about, gee, maybe I should pick that up again. And we both said, no, you're too old. <laughs> it's going to hurt, you know. And she said, what about Tai Chi? And I said, nah, that's, that's for slow old people. And she said, why not try it? And, and I did. And I... Uh, well, what exactly is it? Tai Chi? Yeah. Um, I think uh, one, of the, one of the ways to translate the phrase is, is shadow boxing, but it's it's a uh, martial art, no contact. Um, it's it requires a lot of. It, it is often done fairly slowly, which some people don't like. But actually, that makes it very challenging. Um, but it has a lot of forms, moves that are very similar to uh, a hard combat martial art. In fact, that's what it's derived from. Um, so you know, I, I started. Uh, with that back in, I think, 2012 with the Asian Arts Group in Albany. Wonderful school there, great instructors. Um, went through several, so I, I primarily do Sun style, 
uh, went through several forms, got certified as an instructor and taught, I don't know, nine, 10, 12 uh, senior residential facilities for quite a few years. Um, and then when the pandemic hit, I was thinking I'd wind down my teaching a little bit um, and the pandemic hit and it's been two years and I hate to say it, but I've hardly done any at all. I haven't maintained my certification for teaching. We have to have a, 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 a written exam as well as a, as a demonstration of, you know, a, a what do you call it? Uh, whatever, a demonstration of your skills. Um, and I have it, so I haven't recertified and maintained that, which I, I, I regret. Um, but hopefully once things settle out, I'll get back in the studio and get my skills back up to speed. But I, I really love it. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's very challenging. It's very satisfying. It can be very calming and, and invigorating at the same time. Wow, that sounds like something we could all use, and especially with the pandemic. And I wonder, too, if the Bender Mellon uh, Preserve is going to benefit from the pandemic, because so many more people are going outside now that never did before, just because it's a way to recreate where you're safe. So um, you're, you're absolutely right. Our preserves have gotten a, an, an incredible amount of, of use and attention and appreciation, I think, too. Well, do you have any closing thoughts for us? Gee, uh, well, with regard to Bender, I think everybody keep, keep your eye on it. Um, give us some support. Yes, we'll be looking for volunteers. But uh, I think, Melissa, you put it well with all the development around it and, and, the, and the bullet we dodged on the Bender farm with the uh, mega mall that was originally proposed. Um, I hope everybody will come out and enjoy it and support it in whatever ways they can, and as well as our other MHLC preserves. And go to the website, find the preserve near you, take a hike, take a walk, take a snowshoe. Um, it's wonderful properties, and many, many of them are just minutes away from your house. <laughs> 